you'll take your Bibles and turn to the book of Colossians chapter 1. <clears throat> Colossians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 24 through 29 today. I do want to remind you, as part of our Putting Down Roots initiative, that uh, we have resources available for you. If you have not picked up those already, I know most of you have, but don't forget that this booklet and the commitment cards are out there at our table. Uh, you can also find more information on our church website. You know, as I think about this <clears throat> Putting Down Roots effort, I think about the, uh, I can't help but think about the number of people nine to ten years ago about 100 folks who played such a pivotal role in launching this congregation, launching the campus of Leonardtown Baptist Church, which now we know is Redeeming Grace Baptist Church, how these folks sacrificed in a variety of different ways to make this a reality. You and I are benefiting um, on their work, on their efforts. Some of those people are still here. Thank the Lord for that. And uh, yet, as we continue to grow, we continue to benefit from their investment. And as I think about this opportunity, I can't help but think about how this is our turn to now leverage what we have been given as a stewardship here at Redeeming Grace Baptist Church as we turn the page to the next chapter of what this church will be and will do. And so I just want to encourage you uh, to continue to pray and continue to seek the Lord as you think about this opportunity to invest in this work and this effort. And I know that Money is something that we have to look at and talk about because it costs money to build buildings. But at the end of the day, my greatest prayer is in Colossians chapter 1, verse 10, that through all of this, whether it's giving to a capital campaign or whether it's serving your neighbor, whether it's being a witness in the workplace, whether it's being a faithful husband or wife or being a, a diligent steward with your life as a follower of Jesus, that we would do it as we walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. That's what we're after. That's what we desire first and foremost. And as we all seek to give ourselves to that kind of way, that kind of lifestyle, then the Lord will continue to use us and bring us to a place where we can be stewards together for his glory. As we turn now to God's word, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you that we can turn now to understand what you would have for us to see and hear today from this passage of Scripture. Would you open our minds and our hearts that we might be receptive for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, not too long ago, within this last year, there was a new feature that came out on the iPhone. Now, I know some of you unregenerate Samsung people think, well, we've had this feature for a while, but uh, this new feature is, is a daily or a weekly report. You can set up this report however you want to, but this report pops up on your phone now and tells you how much time you have averaged in a given week or in a given day. So this morning, a little notification went off, and I looked at my phone, and it said, your weekly report, you have averaged three hours and 59 minutes of screen time per day this past week. And I about panicked. I thought, there's no way possible that I have spent four hours a day. And I start justifying things. Well, my kids, they get my phone, they play games on it. You know, I thought, it's not all me. And I, and I start justifying away that time. But I thought to myself, if that is true, how wasteful. How wasteful. Quickly led me to think of how I spend my time and what it is that often dominates my life. 
Well, long before screen time was a thing, there was a man by the name of C.T. Studd. He was a well-known missionary from England in the 1800s who spent his life, literally, serving the Lord, first in China, then in India, and he later finished his ministry in Africa where he died as a missionary, proclaiming the gospel. He was a man of relentless determination to see the gospel advance. And he wrote a well-known poem from which two lines have served countless believers uh, since then. And Dave stole my thunder this morning as he quoted that, those two lines from that poem, from this missionary. Those two lines read this, Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. You know, often when we think about greatness and significance today, it's, it's defined in a variety of different ways, whether it's popularity or education level or, or income level or status, social status, on and on we can go. And, and when we think about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, sometimes we too can get caught up in those earthly and worldly definitions of what it means to be great, to be good, and to be faithful. But when you're gone, the only thing that's truly going to matter is how you lived out your life for the sake of King Jesus, for the sake of the gospel. Only thing that's going to matter of how you spent your life as a steward of the message of Jesus Christ. Paul is writing to this church at Colossae. He's writing to instruct them, warn them, about some false gospels that were, going on, were, that were being propagated around that region in that particular day. And so he's writing to warn them about that. He's also rem- writing to remind them to stay firmly rooted in the true gospel, in the gospel that they had received. And as they are rooted in that true gospel, that gospel is going to transform them and have a radical impact on how they live out their lives together. And so what we see here in these early verses of Colossians is before Paul calls these believers to live a radically Christ-centered life, he first demonstrates what that kind of life looks like. And that's what we're going to see in our text this morning as we pick up in Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 24. Paul writes, he says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of his mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. What we have here in verses 24 through 29 is a snapshot, an overview, if you will, of Paul's ministry, of how he spent his life. His ministry was marked not by a comfortable uh, um, kind of life. I think a lot of times we get caught up with comfort, don't we? In fact, if you were to read uh, in the book of 2 Corinthians, multiple places we could go for a good understanding of how Paul spent out the days of his 
ministry, we can get snapshots throughout the scripture. And we see in chapter 6 of 2 Corinthians, verse 8, says, Through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. And then if you were to jump to chapter 11, a passage we've probably heard, if you've been uh, around Scripture very long, you've probably heard about Paul's own testimony where he says, with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. In a night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there was the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. So we see very easily how Paul lived out his life of ministry. He he didn't have it easy. Paul Paul didn't have this, this ivory tower kind of concept of ministry. He was a man compelled to literally pour out his life as an offering unto the Lord, willing to do whatever it took to see the gospel impact as many people as he possibly could. As we think about his particular testimony here in the book of Colossians, we know that the the Apostle Paul is called the Apostle Paul, capital A. And so we know that this is an office that's not to be repeated. He served a unique role at a very pivotal point in time in history. And so for us to come today and say we should be apostles like Paul, that would not be a right application of this text because that was something unique to his calling. But yet his life does serve to us as an encouragement in the ministry that all of us have. All of us, if you claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, have a ministry. You have a ministry to fulfill, a responsibility to live out. You'll notice even throughout this passage, while Paul refers to his own life and ministry in the first person singular, he says, I, I rejoice, I am filling up, etc. He often uses the first person plural, we. So Paul understood that this, is, this ministry was not just about himself, it was about himself and others who joined with him in the ministry, others who weren't apostles, others who had other kinds of responsibilities in this ministry, in this cause to advance the gospel. And so as we take a look briefly this morning into the life of Paul's ministry, we should be encouraged by him, even though he served a unique role at a unique point in history, we should be encouraged by his example and what he did and some of the principles that we can glean here, even from his life, as we seek to fulfill the responsibility and the calling that God has called each of us to fulfill. So I want us to point out this morning three specific marks of faithful ministry as we seek to steward our lives for the sake of the gospel. Three specific marks of a faithful ministry, or we could say a faithful minister. And in some ways, all of us are called to be ministers of the gospel. It looks differently, it's fleshed out differently in different contexts, but that's what we're all called to be. We're called to be stewards 
of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What does that look like? Well, first and foremost, one mark that we see from Paul's life here is that a faithful steward joyfully embraces the cost. A faithful steward joyfully embraces the cost. Notice what he says in verse 14, or excuse me, verse 24. He says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Now, Paul said some pretty crazy things in a, in a lot of different places. And this is one of those crazy things that kind of sticks out to us as he, as he says, I rejoice in my sufferings. Now, now, how many of you said that when the stomach virus just recently went through your household? I rejoice in my sufferings. How many of you are rejoicing in your sufferings when you get that tax return back and it doesn't say amount overpaid, it says amount owed. And it's got three or four zeros past it. We don't rejoice in our sufferings in, in that way, do we? It's not something that we're naturally drawn to do. And yet Paul here says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Paul was likely referring to his imprisonment in Rome. But one of the things we need to see more importantly is what he's not saying. What he is saying and what he's not saying. What he's not saying is that he rejoices to suffer, period. I don't know anyone, even Paul, who would say, I rejoice to suffer, period. He says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. He qualifies it, doesn't he? He qualifies the reason. He understands that there's a purpose in his suffering. He saw, it, how, he saw how this suffering benefited the church. Even a church, remember, a church he had never visited. He's never been to Colossae. He's never talked to these believers face to face. And so yet he understood because of his unique role as an apostle, capital A, he understood that his unique role, even the sufferings that he endured, served the good of the church in Colossae and for that matter, many other churches scattered throughout this region in that day. He understood that the sacrifices he made, go back and read 2 Corinthians 11, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, these kinds of things he endured, he did for the good of others, especially the Gentiles, because that's who he was called to serve specifically. He talked a lot about his sufferings. You can see all throughout his letters in Philippians 1.18, 2 Timothy 1.12, 3.11, 1 Thessalonians 1.6. You can see it again in Acts chapter 9. On and on we could go where Paul refers to his struggles, his sufferings, the things he endured. But he understood he did that for the sake of God's people. How does his sufferings, though, affect the church at Colossae, a church that he'd never visited? It's kind of a good question to ask. You think, okay, he's suffering. Well, how in the world does his suffering way over here impact believers way over there? We'll continue reading. He says, rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Now, he understood that there was purpose. But you read that verse and you're like hold on just a minute is Paul saying that there was something lacking in Christ's work and he says I'm filling up verse 24 what is lacking in Christ's afflictions are you are you telling me Paul that there's something missing there's something lacking in the sufferings of Christ What's he referring to here? 
A couple of things that we need to keep in mind. Number one, Paul has just talked about in the previous verses how the death of Jesus is sufficient to save us. The death of Jesus, go back to to the early verses, all the way from 15 down to verse 23. A couple of times Paul references there how the death of Christ is the means through which believers are reconciled to God. So it would make absolutely no sense to, to say what he just said and then to turn around and now say somehow there's something lacking in the death of Christ on the cross. So when he refers to Christ's afflictions, he's not referring to his atoning work on the cross. In fact, the word afflictions used here in our Bibles is never used in reference to Jesus' suffering on the cross to bring about salvation. When he dies as an atonement for our sins, this particular word is not a word used in reference to to the cross work, to the redemptive work that was required to reconcile sinners to God. So he's not referring here to the work of Jesus on the cross. Paul's talking about filling up to complete what's lacking in Christ's afflictions. We have to remember that Jesus talked about how there would be many tribulations and sufferings that the people of God would endure. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 5, he says, We share abundantly in Christ's sufferings. Again, he can't mean here his work to save us when he's referring to Christ's sufferings, but rather the sufferings that were directed towards Jesus. We know that Jesus has now ascended into heaven and he's now physically out of reach for affliction, for suffering to be directed his way, the hatred of the world. We know that that's now directed towards his followers. And so Christ's work is lacking in the sense that the ongoing work of a suffering witness is incomplete until all the nations are reached and Christ returns. What's lacking really is the the impact of the gospel reaching the nations through which much suffering will have to be endured for that to happen. That's what he's referring to. So Paul is in essence saying, I rejoice in my sufferings because I know that it serves the cause of the gospel going forth and seeing sinners saved, churches planted, disciples made. And that's not going to be received too well in a lot of different places. So he says, I joyfully embrace the cost. I rejoice in my sufferings because I know it's causing, the, the, the fruit of this is causing the gospels to advance. One thing the gospel calls us all to is an embrace of joyful suffering for the sake of the gospel. Paul's encouraging us here, simply saying, in essence, it cost me nothing to receive the gospel, so I'm willing to invest all of me, even with suffering, for the sake of seeing the gospel go forth among the nations. You know, as I think about Paul's own example there, I think about my own life, I think about us. Our... Could we truly say the same thing? I mean, I'm going to just ask you, what has it cost you to follow Jesus? What has it cost you to follow Jesus? You know, if you could say it's truly not cost me, my life looks no different today than it did 20 years ago or five years ago or two weeks ago whenever I started trusting in Jesus. What has it cost you? 
Friends, following Jesus will cost you something. In one sense, it costs you nothing because you come to him freely. He's paid it all, and so you come to him as a free gift. But in another sense, it costs you everything. For many of us, it will cost us relationships. Some of us, it's going to cost us time. We would rather spend time doing this, but now because of Christ, we're going to joyfully give ourselves to, to stewarding our time in this way. It means we're going to, it's going to cost us resources. It's going to, some of us, it's going to cost us a career change. It's going to cost us comfort. And on and on we could go as we think about what it means to follow after Jesus. It will cost you something. Friends, I think this is a question we need to regularly ask here in the West, especially in the United States of America, because the American version of Christianity is way too comfortable. In fact, it's a joke compared to other places in the world. Just recently this week saw a video where a gathering of Chinese believers received a shipment of Bibles. And you thought it was a bunch of nine-year-olds on Christmas morning opening the latest gadget. I mean, they were ripping those boxes open, grabbing a Bible, clinging it to their chest, literally weeping because they now have the Word of God in their hands. Bring a box of Bibles and lay it in here, and we'll be just like, hey, I've got two of those on my phone. But I don't read. It's too comfortable. Brothers and sisters, if we're going to be faithful stewards of Christ, it means that we will at times gladly, with difficulty, embrace suffering, embrace sacrifice for the purpose of seeing the gospel advance and for the purpose of seeing the church flourish in the world. 2 Timothy 2, verse 10, Paul says this. I just wonder, can I say this? Can you say this? Paul says, therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Can you say that? Can I say that? Am I willing to endure everything for the sake of seeing the gospel go forth in this world and seeing sinners saved and the church built, spiritually speaking? Disciples made? And what are you willing to endure for the cause of the gospel? What does that look like in your life? That's mark number one. Mark number two of a faithful steward is that he or she diligently fulfills the call. You see that in verses 25 through 28. Paul goes on to explain his ministry further. Where he, as, he, as he talks about his calling and the sufferings that he rejoices in for the sake of the church, as he seeks to advance the gospel, he goes on to describe of which I, verse 25, became a minister according to the stewardship from God, or the commission that he'd been given from God, that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Paul understood his calling. He uses the word, the ESV translates it stewardship. Other translations use it, the word commission. It comes from this idea, uh, we, we don't really have this concept today in our, in our culture, but, but there was, back in Paul's day, it was common for a household to have a household steward. It means you'd have your household and you would have someone, maybe from the outside or perhaps from the inside of your extended family, that basically would serve as a steward of your house. 
take care of all the bills, take care of managing your, your affairs, make, make, making sure that the kids were taken care of, all that was kind of set. Sounds nice, doesn't it? I mean, let's be biblical. Let's, let's see if we can't right now. I mean, just think about that. that that's, that's really the concept he's talking about here that he's borrowing from from that day and time and saying that, that we've been called. He understood his calling as, as, as the Apostle Paul as a steward, as someone who has a responsibility to manage the affairs of God's work in a particular way. He understood that he had been given this special responsibility, that his life belonged to the Lord for the purposes of the Lord. In 1 Corinthians 4 verse 1 he says, this is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. 1 Corinthians 9, 17, Woe to me, he says, if I do not preach the gospel, for if I do this of my own will, I have a reward, but not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. Several points that Paul references here about his stewardship. Notice, the, first of all, the context of his stewardship, the context of his ministry. He said, the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. Again, Paul understood his ministry was to serve the church. Now, Paul had a unique role in that he was an apostle, and he had, he had kind of a wide reach as far as his personal ministry went, but it was all centered upon local churches scattered throughout the known world of that day. That was the context of his stewardship. It had to do with the good of the church, even churches he had never been to, Colossians. Again, Paul's role as an apostle had him go down a very different road that others would take. But yet I think we understand the context is still as important, no matter what we've been called to be or do. So you see the context of his ministry, but notice the content of his ministry. He says, to make the word of God fully known. So the stewardship from God given to me for you, church, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Particularly, he goes on, how great among the Gentiles are the riches of his glory. This idea that, that Paul had this ministry, unique calling, to the Gentiles, to reveal to them and to the known world that, hey, they too are part of this wonderful plan of redemption. Not just Jews, but Gentiles. He says, him we proclaim, speaking of Christ, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Paul's unique stewardship was to be a servant of the gospel to the Gentiles so that the Gentiles could know the hope of glory. Notice he said to make the word of God fully known. Really what that means is to allow the word of God to have its full effect. We know that if Paul was, if we were to think of that in the sense of preaching the entire counsel of God, which we know that it's important to do that. If Paul did that, he could only have spent his life in one place, and he still wouldn't have exhausted the depths. So what that's really referring to is he's, his ministry is to allow the Word of God to have its full effect in the lives of people everywhere, and he did it through proclaiming, through warning, through, through teaching, we're told. His ministry would include both the positive aspect of proclaiming and teaching and also the negative aspect of warning, that's exactly what he's doing in this letter, isn't it? He's warning them about false teachers, and he's teaching them and proclaiming to them the gospel, which is what will transform them. The content is gospel-centered, the consequence of his ministry, number three. Paul did all this, he said, that we may present everyone mature or perfect in Christ. 
See that there in verse 28. That was the goal of it. That these believers would be presented as mature, as perfect in Christ in the, in the 122 sense. If you go back to verse 22, it talks about how Jesus has reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless above reproach before him. It's the, full, it's the fullness of your salvation. So in a nutshell, Paul's stewardship was to proclaim the gospel wherever he went, knowing that his purpose was to see the Gentiles gathered in, indwelled by the living Christ, and presented blameless before God. That was a radical statement in his day. It was radical because he comes out of a very Jewish heritage, which, which for many in that day, the Jews thought they kind of had a, a placeholder uh, on, on, on redemption. And, 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 and the Lord is now blowing that idea out and saying, no, this is for Jews and Gentiles. Paul had this unique calling as a steward. Brothers and sisters, we too have been given a stewardship. What we learn from Paul is his single-minded devotion and focus on the task that God had given him enabled him to live out his ministry faithfully and fully. Friends, the church has been given a clear stewardship. We know that based upon other passages of Scripture, that that stewardship that each of us has will look different. God has gifted us in different ways, but he's put us all together in the same place. For example, Redeeming Grace Baptist Church, he's, he's gifted all of you differently, and he's yet given all of us a stewardship. That'll, be, that'll look different in how that's fleshed out, but it has the same goal. You think about Paul's ministry. He was an apostle, which is unique to his, his call, that we will not share, but we have the same goals, don't we? We too want to, to live out our lives for the good of the church. We too want to live out our lives for the advance of the gospel, to see disciples made, to see the church, church expand and see churches planted and the kingdom grow. All of us ought to be working toward that same reality. So as you think about that, just again, think about the things that you live for. What, what do you seem to, what, what wakes you up in the mornings? Do you see your life as a steward of the gospel? Are you primarily concerned with your personal needs daily, or do you seek to position yourself regularly for the good of others? Is the gospel a primary focus in your life, in your family? Is it something that's often on the forefront of your thinking when you're making decisions? Are you serving the church in a way that helps to build it up spiritually as you see people encouraged in the gospel? Is your conversations seeking to do people good in the Lord? You see yourself as a provider or a consumer. Church in America has plenty of consumers, plenty. Friends, as a steward, he's called you to be a provider, to provide time, to provide resources, to provide the gift that he's given you to serve the ministries of this church, the good of our neighbors, the good of this community. So we answer that call. Third characteristic of a faithful steward is that he or she will deliberately depend on Christ. De deliberately depend on Christ. Notice what Paul says in verse 29 as he reflects back and kind of summarizes now. He says, for this I toil struggling 
This is not just a, Christianity to Paul was not a one-hour thing, not a one-hour-a-week kind of thing. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. The language is used there very intentionally, isn't it? Notice what he says, I toil, I labor, I struggle. There's effort that he's putting into it. He's pouring out his life exhaustedly so for the sake of the gospel, understanding that the power through which he works for the gospel and the good of the church, the advance of the gospel, is not in and of, of, of his own strength. Notice he says, struggling with all his energy. That he powerfully works within me. Paul would have sung that song this morning, Yet not I, but through Christ in me, loudly and clearly. He lived that. He understood that, that, that he had nothing in and of himself to give. But he was going to labor and he was going to toil in the power of Christ. Brothers and sisters, too often we try to do life in our own strength and according to our own wisdom, don't we? And when we do this, we sell ourselves short as to what we could ultimately accomplish for the sake of Christ for the good of his church. That manifests itself in so many different ways. The lack of prayer, lack of time in the word. And just, just think this week. That right there alone will clarify how much of you you're depending upon and how much of Christ you're depending on, how long you spent in prayer, how long you spent in the word. It'll show itself up in the lack of taking risks for the sake of the gospel. We'll want to be way too safe and way too comfortable. Show itself up in ways that we're, we're, we're truly not sacrificing ourselves. Friends, are you deliberately depending on Christ? The power of Christ will lead us to do more for him than we ever thought imaginable. The fact that I'm standing here talking to you is living proof of that. This little shy goofball of a kid that would dare not hardly talk to anyone face to face, much less to a couple of hundred people on a Sunday morning. This is kind of God's joke on everybody now that he can take the weakest of the weak and use them for some good in the world. It's not me. It's the power of Christ. Any good is going to come from me. It's not going to come from me. It's going to come from Christ. And the same is true for you, friends. If you're going to do any good in the world, and friends, I can, I can point to evidences of, of so much grace in your lives, of how God is using you, how gifted you are, how, how great it is to have you as part of this church. I mean, I could just go on down the list and just rejoice of how God has blessed this church with so many quality people. But at the end of the day, I know that it's not you. Sorry. I know it's Christ. I know that it's the power of Christ in you and through you, working to bring about his purposes for his glory. Friends, we all have been given a stewardship in the gospel. And if we're going to faithfully steward the life that God has called us to live, it will mean that we will come to him with open hands and, and a blank sheet of paper, if you will, and just say, Lord, what would you have me do? I'm not talking about just a capital campaign. I'm talking about your life. 
Lord, what would you have me be and what would you have me do? How would you have me live out my life this week, this month, this year, five years from now, ten years from now? What would you call me to do to be a steward of this gospel? Brothers and sisters, there's no better place in life than being all in for Jesus. You you can waste your life on good things, enjoyable things. There's no better place than to be all in for the sake of the gospel and the good of the church. And so when you see your life as a stewardship, you will joyfully embrace the cost. You will see difficulty and hardship not as a hindrance, but as an opportunity. Number two, you will diligently answer the call. You will be faithful in your home, faithful in your work, faithful in your school. Again, you'll see that the Christian life is not an hour or two on Sunday mornings in a warm room. I know it's warm. But it's all of life. All of life. We're stewards. For some, that's going to mean I'm going to, by God's grace, be more intentional in my relationships. I'm going to be more aware of my life as a whole. For others of you, it may mean that you're being called to full-time ministry. It may mean that you're being called to go to the nations for the sake of this gospel. Number three, it means all of us are going to deliberately depend on Christ. You know, I imagine, this is probably not how it's going to happen, but I imagine something like this. When we get to heaven, that there will be a report, perhaps, that we could see that will say for each of us, so-and-so averaged so many hours a day serving Christ. I don't think you'll have your phone with you, so it's not going to pop up on your phone. But you see, the difference between our smartphone report and that heavenly report is this. There will be no one in heaven that will ever think, I wish I would have done less for Christ. No one. I think quite the opposite will be true. Why didn't I give myself more? More time. More conversations more opportunities for the sake of Christ and his church. Brothers and sisters, we've been called to be stewards of the life we've been given. Let's not waste it. Let's not waste it, but let's all be in, all in, for the good of the church, the advance of the gospel, and the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we're reminded this morning through your servant Paul of what a faithful steward looked like. Lord, we know he wasn't a perfect man. But Father, he had a perfect Savior. He had a perfect salvation, and that is the very reality that compelled him to live out a life of faithfulness to the gospel. Lord, would you show us this morning in our own hearts and in our own lives how we too can be part of this great cause of being a people people of your own possession who live out our lives in faithfulness to you. Lord, would you help us be stewards? Would you show us where we have neglected our stewardship, our stewardship of time and our stewardship of relationships, our stewardship in in every aspect of our lives? Would you show us, Lord, how we have compromised, how we have grown lazy and complacent and, and, and careless with the stewardship that you've given us? And Lord, how we've spent ourselves for the sake of earthly pursuits and not on the things that are heavenly. 
Would you help us to see that and confess that and repent that we may walk in faithfulness to you, we pray. Thank you, Father, for showing us these wonderful truths of what it means to be a steward of the gospel. Help us to live that life well to your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.